Hello, you are listening to the Plumfield Moms, and this is Our Reading Life in partnership with our friends from BiblioGuides. Hi, I'm Diane Pendergraft with Sarah Masaryk, and we're here for Our Reading Life today with Tanya Arnold and Sarah Kim. And Yuna. And Yuna. Tanya and Sarah, welcome back. Happy almost Merry Christmas. It's almost Christmas when we're mm. recording. I think this will air right after Christmas. Um, so it'll still be, I'm Catholic, it's still Christmas. <laughs> All the way till February 2nd, friends. Anyway, <laughs> there's your liturgical update for the for the day. It is Christmas until Candlemas. Tanya and Sarah, welcome to <laughs> welcome back to our reading life. I am very excited to chat with Sarah today because we happen to know that as usual, we accidentally read the same book again. So that'll be fun to (laughs) talk about. But we're going to start with Tanya today. So Tanya, you went last last time and barely got to squeeze in what you wanted to say. Wasn't it last time that you went last? I don't know. That was so long ago. I did not recall. (laughs) What did you read this month that's going to make us all run out and read something? Because that keeps happening. I know. Well, I don't know that there will be anything. Mm. I know. I had a slower reading month because everything else was more chaotic. Well, it's the holidays. That makes sense. It is the holidays. Mm. And I feel like I've hosted perhaps three things a week, every week, the last couple of weeks. And starting with like Thanksgiving. And then my parents had their 50th wedding anniversary. And we did a little something for that. And then Christmas parties. And just all kinds of stuff. So it's been a little kind of hit and mess. And I do know Sarah brought up that she was reading The Cuckoo's Calling. And I had also started it, but didn't mention it last month because I was like only into the introduction. And then when Sarah said she was reading it, I was like, wait a minute, I'm reading that too. (laughs) Anyway, I finished it and I know she did. So we'll talk about that when she gets to her part. Poor Sarah. Everything she's talking about, other people are reading with her. (laughs) <laughs> I know. Right. I know. So we'll just all jump in on Sarah's thing and it'll be great. I have two other books too. Oh, I actually read a lot. Yay. Wow. Cool. <laughs> so I did start another, I assume this is a YA book, but it's by Lauren Walk and it's called Echo Mountain. Mm. And she's the same person that Wolf. wrote Hollow. Hollow. Yeah, I have that one. So we've read it. I think Sarah Kim has read it. No, you haven't? <laughs> I'm probably the only one on our team that hasn't read it. Mm. I was going to say, I thought our whole team had almost read it. So it's it was really good. It is very reminiscent of To Kill a Mockingbird. Mm. So I and again, it's been a couple of years, but I remember feeling that if you weren't quite ready to take your child to To Kill a Mockingbird, and I have kind of strong feelings about that book. I've seen people recommending that as low as sixth oh, grade. Oh, no, 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 no. And I, yeah. okay, no, right? Yeah, no. There is no, no, there is no need, in my opinion, to do that. I think junior level. Just because Scout is that age does not mean that that's the target audience. I think that must be the reason because I can't imagine, yeah, recommending it for that young and waste wasting it on a sixth grader who won't appreciate it and then might have a negative taste right. in their mouth. Yeah, it's too heavy oh, of yeah. topics mm-hmm. too. It's very complex mm-hmm. um, moral situations and philosophical ideas to think through. I just think Mm -hmm. wait, wait and have a really meaty discussion on that. And we've seen the play as well. And the play I think is fantastic. Mm. And Gregory Peck. I mean, the movie is amazing. And the movie is amazing. Yes. So 
if you're thinking at some point I want to do that, Wolf Hollow could be just a great step mm. into some of the ideas. Yeah. It, it's not To Kill a Mockingbird, but it has a lot of those same situations in a way. So it's very reminiscent of that. And I thought very well done. She also wrote Echo Mountain. So I got Echo Mountain and thought, well, I'm going to see what I think of that one. And it is set in the 1930s in Maine. So it's Great Depression Mm. era. Has this family who loses everything and they have to move to the mountains and figure out how to take care of themselves and how to provide for themselves. And she loves being in the mountains. She loves being outside. She loves nature. She loves the animals. Her mom and her sister are really struggling with that. They miss maybe running water (laughs) and a solid floor and the things that you would miss if you'd kind of been more in a town environment. And something happens to her dad where he's injured and he's in a coma and just in their little hut. Wow. And you don't know what happened, but you know that everyone thinks – she says that everyone thinks it's her fault. But she knows that it wasn't her fault. And so this is kind of the dynamic that's being set forth. And all the people on the mountain are trying to figure out how to work together. So some people are good at some things and they try to trade meat for milk for maybe someone knows how to grow something or someone's good at medicine. And there, there is a line that I think is going to start where she's going to learn about natural medicine, mm. where she'll, she's going to learn about using the plants. Sure. For healing. Sure. So, so far it's pretty interesting and we'll see. I really did like Will Paulo, so I'm just excited to see if she is as good as she was that first right, time around. Right, I read right. Her, right. Does she continue to be a good author? Cool. So the only other thing I read, and I just, this, I just want to share like a few snippets because it's just fascinating to tie to literature. I've been part of a mom's group and we've been kind of reading through some different educational philosophies and books on different subjects for education or teaching children. And Marlene Peterson of Well-Educated Heart put together an anthology of sort called The Well-Educated Mother's Heart Learning Library. And there's 12 books in the series. And each book is a topic such as art or, or music. And Th- it's Thanks to you, I have, uh, I think I have a, right? a set. A set? <laughs> I think it's a whole set. Yeah. Yeah. You have a whole set. And what they are, not they are not her writings, but she compiled writings, a lot of it pre-1927, so public domain Mm -hmm. stuff, that was being written on these topics, oftentimes by educators. So this month, we're studying the art book. Oh, nice. And so you're going to know that it was written in the 20th, early 20th century. It's 1914. How to Show Pictures to Children by Estelle M. Hurl. And here's one of the things that she said that I really loved from the introduction. And I just want you to think about who does this remind you of? (laughs) The first rule in all our dealings with children is not to talk down to them. And this is especially true in selecting their pictures. Nothing is too good for them. Some pictures may treat subjects beyond a child's comprehension, but none are beyond him in artistic excellence. The best children's pictures were not made for children at all. Only the illustrators of children's books have consciously addressed a juvenile audience. The great masters worked in obedience to their own heavenly vision, and it is one of the tests of success when a picture appeals equally to all ages and all sorts and conditions. So you're asking us to say that this sounds like Charlotte. <laughs> Doesn't it? It does. Absolutely. And C.S. Yes, Lewis? Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> like, like, nothing is too good for right. a child when it comes to presenting them with great exactly. art. 
and, and not to look for children's things, but to look for the best things. Look for the best yeah. things. And good art should appeal to Absolutely. everyone. And I think sometimes when we're even looking at illustrations for children's books, a lot of times that art is appealing to the mom. Uh-huh. Exactly. I was just thinking about how we select our literature. It was just so fascinating to see it all tied together that the same way we select our literature should be the yes. same thought process for how we select and our music. art, how we select yeah. our music and what's available. And then I had this really funny one that I just started laughing out loud. And I said to my husband, come listen to this and tell me when you think this was written. It is over four centuries since the printing press brought books into general circulation. But it is less than half a century since photography brought good pictures within general reach. It is no wonder, then, that many who are well-versed in reading are still more or less ignorant of art. Some of us whose childhood fell in the 70s were brought up among well-filled bookshelves, while the home pictures were few in number and crude in quality. When I started laughing because it said, some of us whose childhood fell in the 70s, and I was like, Wait a minute, this is 19, the 1870s. <laughs> <laughs> like I'm doing the math in my head and I started laughing. And then I thought this book feels as if it was written. It could today. have been, yeah. Like, I, it could have been the 1970s. 70s. <laughs> I'm saying like maybe, maybe we're still better at, at focusing on literature than we are on art. At focusing on art and making sure that we're mm -hmm. providing the best to our children. And so anyway, it had quite a few lovely thoughts about art and it just made me want to up level how I'm introducing art and how art is coming into our home and also recognizing that as much as I love literature, art must be equally impressed and music. Right. And, I mean, we can't just um, eat such a diet of only a few things. And it's so easy for us mm -hmm. to, you know, you, if you really love pastry it's so easy to just get into learning more and more about pastry and getting to be the most exquisite, maybe being able to make the most exquisite pastry and totally in forgetting that there's a whole thing of vegetables over here that can also be really lovely and nourishing. And we, you know, we tend to sort of get into a pattern and go only for certain things that become comfortable or natural to us. But art is, mm -hmm. art is absolutely, you know, essential to our diet and we don't give it as a as a general population we don't give it nearly enough attention or time yeah it's a very compelling thing then to really think about elizabeth ripley's biographies or to think about um, simply charlotte mason has those other artist studies where you're actually studying the actual art i think a lot of those were um, authored by emily kaiser and there's just a lot of really brilliant resources out there for art study we just need to get them and use them yeah and so there's a few books that are in this compilation mm -hmm. that she put together that marlene put together and one of the things is just that there has been and especially at this time better access to literature and not as great access to art because they didn't have photography as well as we do now and i thought okay so in that hundred plus years when we now have at our fingertips to have art great art with us all the right. time do we and we don't Exactly. And we mm -hmm. don't. And the same with literature. We have the possibility to have the greatest literature in our homes mm -hmm. for our children. And do we? And we don't. And so it went from people having very minimal ability to have a book mm -hmm. or music or art in their homes over history to us having the ability to have more than the kings of the past had access right. to across all cultures right. and all yes. time and all languages. And yet we squander that right. gift. And, and again, I know that, but it was just kind of brought to my mind again. And, and I was just, it was like a refocus to say, 
you know, like slow down and focus and bring this in, like focus on this aspect that's so easy to Mm -hmm. fall through among everything we see. And I love the idea about children's art as well, because I do feel like there is art for children that is bad art. Oh, a lot of it is. Right? Cartoons and so terrible. And then there's illustration where you just, it is as if it was a master, right? It's so amazing. Beatrix Potter is phenomenal. Mm. She is. She may have been writing or drawing specifically for a childish audience, but that doesn't diminish her quality or skill one one iota, I think. And so we have to look for that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. We have to look for those. So I have one other thought that I just wanted to share. And I know we've been kind of having this discussion about when you're teaching or reading a story to a child, and we've talked about not wanting things that are overtly didactic. Mm. And when people think, can we teach virtue Mm -hmm. through story? (laughs) And we've heard this argument Mm -hmm. and there's a lot of thoughts that go around this, but I think all of us want to impart stories to our children that have some sort of a message that our child will have the opportunity to partake if they are ready for various levels. There was another introduction here, and this introduction was from a book called Great Pictures as Moral Teachers by Henry E. Jackson from 1910. And in it, he says, if by art for art's sake is meant that it is not the business of art to preach or moralize, there is nothing in this statement to which the religious man ought to object, even though he be a preacher. For the preacher knows perfectly well that if one paints a picture of a horse and then has to write under it, this is a horse. It is evident that the picture has been poorly painted and has missed its aim. If at the close of a story, one must add the statement this is what I meant to teach. It shows that the story has been lamely told. Mm-hmm. Paul's letter to Philemon has done more for the liberation of slaves than any other piece of writing in the world, and yet in it there is not one word of moralizing on the evils of slavery. The letter simply preserves the record of Paul's act and attitude towards a runaway Christian slave. That act did its own preaching. The best preaching is always done so. It is didactic indirectly. Mm-hmm. Right. This is what Dr. Van Dyke meant when he prayed, quote, Lord, let me never tag a moral to a story, nor tell a story without a meaning. So a great work of art embodies a spiritual truth or fact which speaks for itself. Mm-hmm. I love that. Mm, that's so well mm-hmm. told, isn't mm-hmm. it? To make you understand that if you're having to point it out and force that that point either through the art or through the music or through your story you've got a problem and it's poorly done correct yeah it should just pour out of the story naturally and organically it should not be something that Mm -hmm. has to be prescribed or clearly elucidated and you know we're working on a project diane and i are working on a project that you guys are going to host for us and we regarding book clubs. We're going to talk more about that next month um, with Tanya, as a matter of fact. But one of the things that we're doing with that is we want to help moms figure out what is at work in a story. But we don't want it to be one of those, hey, take a look for all the morals in the story so that you can beat your kids over over their heads with it, and then they'll turn out virtuous. (laughs) That's not the point. The point is simply that stories sometimes need a little contemplation in order to see what the actual fundamental virtue is, but it's there. If it's an excellent story, it's there, and it's an issue of going on a treasure hunt more or less to find it and understand it. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the, as a parent, again, I loved how he said, "You don't need to say this is a horse, no. your child. They should know that it's right. a horse. They might not know what the yeah. name of it is, but they know what it is. The concept is not. Yeah, and and I think a lot of times children are reading a story, and they f- send a message like, "I just did my first." literature club with my eight to 11 year olds. I had about 10 children and we did 101 Dalmatians and it was so fun. And I could ask them really good questions Mm -hmm. and they had a lot to say on what they saw in the Mm -hmm. story. So I didn't have to tell them, did you learn something about obedience (laughs) here in this story? Exactly. Right. But I could ask them, hey, what did you think when, you know, Pongo told the children in this certain situation, I need you to follow my orders directly and and do not go astray from that. Right. When I say do this, do it. What did you think about that scene? And why did he right? say and that? And it was really thought Why did he say that? And why? And then the kids know. Mm-hmm. They know why Pongo said that. They know why that mattered. <laughs> I love it. I love yeah. It. But it was fun. There was just a lot of situations where they could kind of break it down and they could say what they, what they saw yeah. in that storytelling, which never once used the word obey. Right. And if yeah. you had told them, now look for examples of obedience, it wouldn't have resonated with them the same way as they were reading it and they noted these things because they made an, it made an impression mm-hmm. on them. And then at club, you can talk about it and they can realize that they noted those things, even if they didn't mm-hmm. know that they had. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Really fun. Anyway, so that was pretty much the extent of my reading. A little heavier reading as a mom, but I just, I loved that the art book made me also think of literature and music and that I heard Charlotte Mason's words. I think it's awesome when you hear truth. If it truly is truth, you should see it repeating itself in various places, right? And it will speak to you in various Mm -hmm. ways. And you can apply it usually to other aspects. It isn't only truth for one topic. It should be kind of universally true. Yeah. It's a universal truth that applies in so many situations. And like I said, a YA book. And then when Sarah starts hers, I have more to say. Jump in. (laughs) Yeah. I wanted to share a resource for art for the youngest kids. Mm. So on Riverbend Press, they sell art artist prints and they have a collection for specifically designed for the CMEC, which is a Charlotte Mason curriculum that we use for their kinderleben level, which is before the student starts school. So, Mm. you know, the youngest child up to, you know, age six. And they have a collection of artist prints and they're famous artwork, but they just especially appeal to the very youngest. Yeah. So there's like one really beautiful illustration of a rabbit. It's like the whole eight by 10. Oh, wow. And then they have, you know, like Mary Cassatt with her mother yeah. and children, yeah. artists, prints, and just other examples that would especially appeal to a child because they are showing them artists, like they're, they're showing them illustrations of things that they're familiar with. Yeah. They're kind of like, so they recognize, they know what the, what the picture is about. Yeah. Yeah. I just wanted to share that. It's a nice collection. That's beautiful. I have that collection, Sarah, and I love that one as well. And I love that in this portion of the book about how to show pictures to children, it does say to start with the familiar, mm-hmm. which is also in Well-Educated Heart. That's one of their principles mm-hmm. as well, is that you're going to start with animals typically and family Mm -hmm. because that's the first thing that children associate with and other babies truly love to look at the faces yes they do (laughs) and children and people so you're you can expose them to that really beautiful art and another free resource that people might want to know about is marlene has collected 
a ton of public domain photos, kind of 19th century, I think between the 1800s and 1900s. Isn't that right, Sarah? And she has a website that you can just browse and they're all public domain. So you can just print them out and it's Mm. simple joy art. We'll give you guys the link. And you can just go to like familiar and babies and animals. Like they're all, it's broken down by topic. And so if you're just looking for some that are in that range also that you would like to browse, you can do that as well. And they're gorgeous. So I just, I'm looking at ways in increasing art and how I'm presenting it in the home. And so I was just kind of excited to read through some of these ideas and see what other, I mean, we have so much available to us and so many people out there with good ideas, but I'm also just looking for this book felt to me to be like principle based. Mm-hmm. I'm kind of looking for like what's the underlying principles that I can build on in our home for how I'm bringing all of these beautiful resources in that we have yeah. plethora of in our lives. You know, I know that this is not classical art, but when we're talking about this and you were talking about babies, love pictures of babies, the thing that just keeps resonating with me is the little golden books that are illustrated by Eloise Wilkins. The All of those little children's moment like the little mommies and little daddies but like there's the seasons one and the on the baby ones and oh my goodness all the the little children in my library pour over those and they are always checked out as soon as they come back in they go right back out to a different family because they are yeah we have a collection of those that some of Yuna's favorite yeah she loves to see the little boy who can do everything for himself and the little boy and the girl this the brother and sister that are helping their mom yes (laughs) just like really cute short stories that she can really relate to like we go to see we go to the seashore and it's the little boy and the little girl Mm -hmm. with their buckets and oh it's just so sweet (laughs) so even moms when you're out there and you're thinking how do I even begin with art study one thing you can do is look for the little golden books and look for Eloise Wilkins because those are exquisite and they are a wonderful way to start having children look at really well, well-drawn pieces of art, I think. And Yuna did have a book. Yes, I'll <laughs> share that collection, the link to it. <laughs> I think it was the Sunlight book, actually. I think that's where I first heard about it. Oh, perfect. <laughs> All right. Well, let's go to Sarah because Sarah has a book that you want to talk about as well, Tanya. So let's let's go that mm-hmm. direction. Sarah, what were you reading that you and Tanya have in common? Okay. So we already mentioned it, I think. I mentioned it last time. I read The Cuckoo's Calling mm-hmm. by Robert Galbraith, a.k.a. J.K. Rowling. <laughs> and Tanya was starting it too. And we both mm-hmm. finished it. And it's definitely for adults. I'll say that again. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, My husband actually read it as well. And he came to me and he was like, this is definitely for adults. Uh Yeah, I know. (laughs) I read it too. (laughs) (laughs) We were looking for maybe like some fun detective novel. For Quano. For Quano. And Mm -hmm. we're like, no, not this series. Mm -hmm. Um, But I really enjoyed it. And I was surprised until the very end, which Wow. Very, very rarely happens for me. And so that was just a fun experience to, because the person who ends up being the culprit, I had just like completely rolled out. Wow. She made a way that it was the case. Wow. (laughs) Was that your experience too, Tanya? So I had the thought where I thought this would be funny. (laughs) Yeah. And then like, no. That, that can <laughs> yeah and then I thought well I'll just but then I didn't really know yeah and I don't know if it was like this would be funny but this would be right, interesting right 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 I guess right. interesting um, and then it was mm-hmm, yeah mm-hmm. I thought that the writing was 
Well mm-hmm. done. I have to assume that the writing gets stronger, though, hence the reason that she's been able to continue the storyline. And again, I like mystery novels, and I read it fairly quickly. I, I took a, you know, kind of a vacation day one day and was like, no, I have to know what happens here. <laughs> I'm a curiosity kill the cat sort of person. I really struggle with not knowing. <laughs> so. See, and with books, I never want it spoiled. If, if it gets spoiled, I have no problem with it, but I myself don't need to go seek the answer. Television shows, I need to know if I'm going to be betrayed. So I am not going to let myself mm. love Tony and Ziva if Tony and Ziva aren't going to end up together. I can't like. It, I do that. Yeah. <laughs> I'll sometimes watch the very end and be like, okay, I don't want to waste my time yeah. if I'm not going to like the ending. <laughs> I never do I, that. I just Google. I'm like, what is going on? Like, Sorry, did you decide if you would read more in the series? I think I probably will, but I haven't actually gotten any additional ones on Audible yet. So I wasn't like in a rush to read the next one. Mm. Yeah, that's how I felt too. Like maybe. Or, you know, I might only max have 50 years left in my life. And is that... you really want to spend it on that? Right. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Like that's Mm. where I'm at. I was... Yeah. (laughs) Diane's laughing. (laughs) But right. Like it kind of gets to the point where you think... I don't have unlimited no, time. I really don't. Time is finite. And so you and have to be choosy. Real estate in your brain is finite as well. It yeah. is. And it's okay to be choosy. And it's okay that we choose things that other people don't choose. That are different yeah. than what other yeah. people choose. Exactly. Yeah. It's totally exactly. fine. Yeah. <laughs> so. <laughs> Yay. So I want to hear what your other books are. And then we'll we'll end up with I Am David. How does that sound? Okay. Yeah. So actually... I wanted to talk about four books today. All of them I listen to on Audible. I am actually reading books. <laughs> they're not on audiobook, but they're all kind of that mother culture yeah. or books for other other things. So all the books I want to talk about today are audiobooks. Uh, so one was The Cuckoo's Calling. Uh, the other, the second and third one, and actually the reason I, I read so many was because of the Audible sale. It was so great. And it was amazing. Yeah. And I got a lot of... Um, just like middle grade sort of novels that I had been wanting to preview read or just so um these two I had kind of had on my list for a while the first one was when my name was Kayoko by Linda Sue Park and the second one was Bamboo People by Matali Perkins and I know Tanya's read when my name was Kayoko Mm -hmm. um and this one I was pre-reading for Kwanu for spring because it's uh, about a Korean brother and sister and I always try to have Korean history free read for Kuanu because of um, because he's half Korean. And it was only last year in seventh grade that we added sort of like an actual Korean history stream to our homeschool. Oh, so he's actually reading more of like a spine sure. um, regularly. But I still also try to add in free reads when I can. And Linda Sue Park has been amazing for that because there's not historically been a whole lot of options. She was kind of mm-hmm. it for a while. <laughs> Sorry for Eunice coughing. She's fine. Um, but there are there are more um, options now. But this one is excellent, and it actually had a lot of similarities for me with Bamboo People by Matali Perkins. So it was kind of interesting overlap. So Bamboo People is about a Burmese boy and one of the native peoples that they're at war with. And this one is actually, both of these books are on our top historical fiction list that we created recently, Mm -hmm. but Bamboo People is actually written more contemporary. Like it was written in 2010 and it took place either like 
you know, it's historical fiction, of course, but it, it, it takes place right around that, that time period. It was contemporary at the time. And both books have multiple perspectives. So When My Name Is Kyoko alternates chapters between the brother and the sister. And Bamboo People, the first little bit more than half of the book takes place from the perspective of the Burmese boy. And the second half takes place from the perspective of the boy on kind of the opposite side of the war from the native peoples that are, oh, are being oppressed. Yeah. And so you see kind of both sides. And then both stories are also like sort of taking place during wartime. And the boys who are young teenagers end up in the war. So there's just like kind of all of these sort of overlaps. I thought they were both really well done. When My Name is Kyoko, it takes place during World War II when Korea is occupied by Japan. It takes place in Korea. And the father of the brother and sister is the principal. It's the principal of the school. And they have an uncle who's like part of the resistance against the Japanese sure, occupation. Sure. And the boy ends up joining the military. They're, so they are... Um, kind of at the heart, like opposed to the Japanese occupation, right. which the vast majority of Koreans were. Um, but he ends up joining the military to kind of help his family. And he's also loves planes mm. and um, so joins to sort of be a pilot and ends up on a mission to be like a kamikaze pilot. So just oh. that whole like historical element yeah. is kind of fascinating. And then um, in Bamboo People, the Burmese boy is kind of his father was a doctor. And so like, again, like they're sort of like in these intellectual circles, sort of professions mm-hmm. where they understand the broader um, context of what's happening. And so the Burmese family is also like not happy with what's happening with the war. And the father is in prison for speaking out against it. And so it's just the boy and his mom and he gets kind of taken off the street. Like he's trying to, he decides he wants to get a job as a teacher um, to try to help his family survive. And he shows up and he kind of knows like it might be a trick and he shows up and basically the boys like all get round up um, and put into the military. Mm. He ends up in the military against his will and has a really harsh commander. And he ends up on a mission going into Thailand where these native peoples are living in a refugee camp. And then it switches perspectives to the native boy who's had his house burned by the Burmese soldiers. So he has a lot of hate and they end up meeting. And there's like just a lot. I I just really loved that one. There's, There's a lot of growth that happens with both characters. And there's good themes of just like broadening your perspective and and so they were both, I thought, like really well done. And um, I just enjoyed those a lot. And um, I likely will have Kwanu read the When My Name Was Kyoko. Oh, I was going to say, I had heard that it touches on the comfort women, which if anybody's familiar mm-hmm. with Korean history and the Japanese occupation, Korean girls and women were taken to Japan. And right. you can probably guess what comfort women means. Used. And, they were um, used. So if you're not like sort of prepared to talk to your kids about it, I think you could still read this book because it's very subtle. Like she doesn't actually come out and say what's happening. But if you kind of know the history, you know, that's what's happening. The girls are asked to like volunteer to go and work in the factories in Japan. And one of the girls whose father is helping the Japanese, they were like, oh, no, don't send her. So you, it's like clear, like they're 
you know, the one who is sort of on the Japanese side is not being sent into this bad situation. Um, but it would also be, it could also be like a great way to broach this topic with an older child that you want to be aware of this history because it's so gently told and you could kind of explain it yourself. Like, oh, when they, you know, when she talks about this, this is actually what was happening. Right. Um, right. You as a parent could be the one to explain it. Right. Yeah. Interesting. I want to, I don't want to move away from what you're saying, but it's interesting because Tanya brought a book where she says this could really be sort of like an entree into this more mature topic. And then you're saying this one could also be used as an entree into a more mature topic. Mm -hmm. And then I think, Sarah, you and I probably will agree that I Am David could also be used as a Mm -hmm. lower reader entree into a more difficult topic. So interesting that we're all reading yeah. Those. Diane, what are you reading that's an entree into a more difficult topic? Come on. Perform. Oh, nothing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not reading difficult stuff. Oh. Well, then what good are you? <laughs> I know. Well, I, I, you know what good I am? I read things. So, oh, so that that's right. That's right. That's your job. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> oh, I even, I forgot. I, I actually read the book that Diane mentioned last time. I totally forgot because it was so short. Did you go and um, get it? <laughs> I did. I got it, but I haven't read it yet. <laughs> um, Which oh, one? What's it called? Yeah. Um, the, I'm trying to find it in my list good. of auto. <laughs> it's Karen, the Harvard the, boys. Kathleen. No, Kathleen. 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 <laughs> <laughs> Look at me, Karen. <laughs> it's a K-A word. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> well, was it funny or was it just silly? Um, that's a good question. <laughs> it was so memorable, Diane. Sarah has just got I know, volumes I know. to say about it. <laughs> it's kind of both. I, I think it's both. Like it, it is pretty silly. Um, but I thought it was, I thought it was funny. Um, and I think like you'd given us a good preview, so I kind of like knew what to <laughs> expect. Yeah, it sounds like it would make a good play. Yes, it would make an excellent play. <laughs> And yeah. it works, so if you don't like it, you didn't waste much of your life. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't say I didn't like it, but it was just okay. Yeah. <laughs> You're not going to go get some more? Probably not. <laughs> In addition to these other books that you've read, you and I both, without meaning mm-hmm. to, are, we both meant to read I Am David. We just didn't know the other one was going to be reading it. What did you think? Yes. And did you, is your copy I Am David or North to Freedom? Well, I own North to Freedom, but I got I Am David on the Audible sale. Ditto! I, listened to it. <laughs> I actually went and ordered a paperback of I Am David just so I could have I Am David. Because mm-hmm. what do you think about the titles? Well, I Am David just shows up so much in the story. It's so prevalent and central. It's a perfect title, really, for it. And North to Freedom is so confusing. Mm. I think I mentioned this in another chat. But (laughs) I, when I got that book, I assumed it was like an American book about slavery and people going north to Canada or something. And it has nothing to do with that at all. (laughs) I know. That was was exactly how I felt about it. So I was like, I mean, how good is this really going to be? And then, you know, Tanya kept talking about it. And I'm like, okay. And then there's a Jim Caviezel movie. And I watched the trailer and the movie is not, mm. does not look accurate at all. Um, looks not even close to the book. Um, <laughs> I was so annoyed. It would be a hard book to make a movie of because there's so much in his head. Mind. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's still, it's still worth it. The movie's still mm. worth watching. Well, James okay. Caviezel is amazing. So if you say so. Yeah, he is. Him. And he's great. Oh, is it. he? And honestly, I 
I think he is. Is he Johannes? He is a good picture of. Okay. Yes. I just think in my mind when I read this book, I think I can see Jim Caviezel as him. That's see, great. I pictured Johannes as younger. What about you, Sarah? How how old did you picture him? Well, this movie's like 20 years old, isn't I, it? Like Jim Caviezel I is know, young. but I, I pictured younger. him like 18 for some reason. I didn't. I pictured as him as a man being more learned yeah. mm-hmm, and educated. Yeah, for whatever reason, oh, I thought of him as being very young. Sarah, did you get the did you get the memo that the he man, was older? The man in the prison. Yeah, his mentor. Mm-hmm. Oh, I thought he was an adult, like a father figure. Yeah, I missed I that step somewhere. I, I I kept thinking, I don't know, maybe because he called him by his first name. I just kept thinking that he was a boy, an older boy, but a boy. So. For those listening at home, I am David. The we we do have it reviewed, and it is on BiblioGuides. But I am David is the story of a boy who, for all intents and purposes, believes that he was born in the concentration camps. He has zero memory before the concentration camp, and in fact, without spoiling too much, he was one year old when he came to the concentration camp, and so his entire existence has been shaped by only concentration camp memories. He has no notion of a flower other than the one lone flower that made it into the concentration camp once. He has no idea what beauty is because to his memory, he's never seen beauty. He doesn't understand how to act or how to think about things. He has no idea how to be a child. And everybody in the camp around him would die because they would die of starvation And he, for some reason, continued to live. And as he finds out later on, he was always being given vitamins and milk by the officer in charge of him. And he thought it was poison. But he comes to find out later that, in fact, this officer was intentionally making sure that he did not die, which is its own very interesting thing. So this is the story of a boy who escapes a concentration camp and is making a trek to go to Denmark. He doesn't know why, but that's where he's told he will find freedom. And so it's interesting, though, because this is happening before the war, right? After the war. After. This is post-World War II, Eastern Europe. Oh, my. That's, I did not realize that. So it's like a Russian It's a Bulgarian concentration camp. camp. I checked just to make sure it's a Bulgarian concentration Mm -hmm. camp. This because it takes place in like 1951 or 1952, and at oh. some point it says that Queen Elizabeth is on the throne. Yes, that's right. It identifies that's right the exact time mm-hmm. period, mm-hmm. and um, and he can freely move through Italy, mm-hmm. right? right? Um, but he can't freely move through some of those Eastern Bloc countries. Right. So I don't know what the situation was because Russia had still right. was holding control of some various it areas. Makes- so it's interesting Make, because it's not World War II. It's not a German no. concentration camp. So it is a different, I mean, it's still a horrible thing, but the whole aspect is still slightly different yeah. than a World War II story. Right. right. It doesn't feel like a Jew in a, it doesn't feel like a Jew in a concentration camp. It feels more like if you were reading about Russian prison camps or something, it felt more like that to me. Yeah, it was a bit disorienting, like, because it's from his perspective, and you don't quite under, you're given nothing by the author to understand your context. And so you're thinking, World War Two, Germany, and then mm-hmm. he's going north, like starting in Italy and going up, actually going through Germany. So you, yes. you may want to like, 
figure out a little bit more of the context before you start or after is fine too, but yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So here's something from online that I think is really helpful. I think I looked this up after I read it. It says in the year 1952, Mm. there were over two and a half million people were in labor camps in the Soviet union. And this is when this book takes Mm -hmm. place in Bulgaria alone between 1948 to 1954, there were 99 forced labor camps. That's what this one was, was a forced labor camp. This is the backdrop against which the story I am David takes place. Okay, that makes a lot of sense Mm -hmm. now. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I still think, though, that it was it's fascinating to think of this as being post-war because when he's traveling north, I did not get any sense that this that he was traveling through countries that had so recently been impoverished and so recently been under war. Everything seemed so peaceful and so beautiful. You know, in Italy, it seemed like it was in its renaissance when he's traveling through Italy. Everybody seemed happy and and everything seemed life was beautiful and easy. And granted, that's his perception. Um, yeah, I felt like it was still a little tense. Like there were cases. So it was 1952, 1953. So you're seven to eight years past the war. So there is a lot of time to do a lot of rebuilding. Right. But it still felt kind of tense to me at times where you weren't sure if everyone had access to food. And then you came across a family mm-hmm. who does and who helps mm-hmm. him. But then he also comes across other people who they're still emotionally bearing the burdens of mm-hmm. the past, but doesn't tell you what those that past right. is, like the woman that he meets in the Alps. Right. And so I kind of felt like it was tenuous. And then he meets some Americans that are traveling, yeah. but I think people were traveling by the yeah. 50s. Yeah. Well, I mean, I understood the English so, were traveling. It's surreal. But then the Americans, you're like, mm-hmm. oh, yeah, okay. Mm-hmm. So I, I feel like we've done a really good job here of m- making this sound very dull and confusing, but it's actually not. It's actually an incredibly <laughs> gripping novel. Um, Sarah, you just, well, I'll just say, and then you can say if you d- agree or not, but I felt like this novel was very exciting, but it was confusing almost by design so as to invite us into his contemplative, um, the the contemplative experience that he was having. I felt very much like this was like Frankenstein when I was reading it. I felt like he was similar to Frankenstein's monster, you know, waiting in the woods, watching what people were doing, taking his cues from the people around him, having this clearly developed ethical standard that Johannes had helped to impart to him, but that he had never tested and never seen in real life. I thought it was really a, a pilgrimage story. Him going north was really about him going further up and further in into a relationship with the god of um, green pastures and still waters. And so I thought it was just a moral and eth- morally and ethically interesting novel. And I thought he was a very likable hero. And I thought that this is the kind of book that could have a really tremendously interesting book club discussion for kids 10 and up, really. It's, if you're going to talk about concentration camps or labor camps, this is a gentle way in because he escapes in the first chapter. So you're not living inside the camp. All of the knowledge you get about the camps comes from his memory of the camps. But Sarah, what did you think? Yeah, I would definitely agree with all of that. And I think it's, it is very much his thoughts that is the story as he's journeying Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. his observations of people, how they perceive him, like him learning about himself as well. Like it talks about his eyes a lot. His eyes, yeah. People look at them 
people look at him and he seems a little off because he has lost, like he has had no normal childhood. And so he's very adult in his behaviors and thinking, but still so immature in so many ways because he's not lived in yes. a, a normal environment. Yes. And I thought the one part where he meets a boy who mistreats him and then mm -hmm. categorizes him as evil, like very black and white thinking and a kind of protection for himself. And then how by the, like he has some insights later on, mm -hmm. but that was so beautiful because it, there's just so much you could talk about with that, where, you know, he's doing the best he can and like yeah. how he views people and, and his relationship with the little girl, like, <laughs> There's, so there's a lot sweet. of it that's very uh, memorable, sticks in your mind. Well, and I love that when he realizes he has miscategorized that boy, that he writes mm -hmm. him a letter apologizing for it. Yes, that was so powerful. So powerful because he has no sense of pretense. Everything about him is just authentic. It's just he, he is who he is and he thinks what he thinks. And when he realizes something new, he has no pride. He has no shame. He just has a rightly ordered sense of, oh, it would be wrong for me not to apologize for that. So I will apologize for that. And I thought he has so much maturity in certain ways. But then, like you said, he has so much immaturity in other ways, like have to have never smiled in your 12 years of life to have never smiled and to not even know how the muscles work to do that. And then to find a reason to smile. It's just fascinating to contemplate what would it have been like to have never grown up in a family, in a safe place, in a place where your life was counted as being worth something? I mean, how many times on this journey did he have to decide if he cared whether or not he lived? Because in order to make a decision, he had to risk what could be, could be his life. And he's like, well, you know, I'm not sure that I care if I live, so I'll risk it. Yeah, and his ideas of God and how he cho like chooses which God he's going yes. to, <laughs> which God he's going to serve, and hope that yeah. he picked the right one. <laughs> yeah, but God never abandons him. God takes mm -hmm. care of him the whole time, and is faithful to him because he is as faithful to God as he knows how to be. Yeah. I love that. Do you know what I love too? That I think would really resonate with kids is when he meets the family that takes him in for a little while. And he can't understand how these children could have access to such a library and not read everything because he's never had that kind of access to information right. and, and knowledge and information has been withheld mm -hmm. from him. And he yearns to know, like he doesn't, he doesn't even know what the world looks like. So he doesn't know how to get to where he needs to go because he has to find a map and he doesn't. So when he sees that, he just yearns mm -hmm. for that. He yearns for truth. He, he's seeking God. He's seeking knowledge and information. And then he's also seeking beauty. And so when they eat and he sees the table yes. set with just their their best mm -hmm. china, their best silverware and napkins, and the other children are throwing stuff and spilling mm -hmm. stuff, he's just horrified <laughs> by this. And at some point, he meets another woman and she says to him to prepare the table. Scene. And he, he looks around and he finds everything he can to make it the most beautiful mm -hmm. table he can make it within the realm of what she has mm -hmm. and she comes out and she's so taken aback like yeah it just takes her breath yeah. away and he says I never want to eat food unless it is done in beauty something to that effect and I remember thinking 
just even like for myself, I, I, I guess I want more of that. I felt like it was like a mother culture yes. thing. Um, <laughs> yeah. did it, like just for me as a mom, I thought that's true. There's such beauty and culture. Mm-hmm. And in times past when people took the time to eat a beautiful meal on, you know, beautiful dishes, like I can get really lazy at times with, can. you know, yeah. three meals a day, a day and whatever. And just the way he looked at it was kind of refreshing and not in the same way as like, oh, I feel guilty that I don't do all these right. things. Right. It was more what would, again, it was like more what would be this underlying principle mm-hmm. for why he would do this thing and, and the principles get laid right. out. Right. Yeah, because he's working and it out. He doesn't just say these things. Mm-hmm. We're hearing all of his thoughts. We're hearing how and why he's coming mm-hmm. at ideas. And then it allows us to evaluate those ideas as well and decide, did he did he see that right or did he see that wrong? Yeah. yeah. I think it's one of the best written books for kids. And it's not graphic. No, there's, there's no, no violence in it. There's yeah. nothing graphic. There's nothing inappropriate. Mm-hmm. And yet it completely challenges it's such a book of theology and philosophy yeah. and good and evil. And yeah, it's a soul feeding book for sure. You, you know, you can have whole conversations about how he evaluates people, like not even just the the one boy who he sort of puts in like the evil category, but all the people that you know as the reader are trying to help him mm-hmm. that he views as threats. And, mm-hmm. you know, anytime somebody tries to do something for him that means they've taken away any sort of slight little bit of his freedom simply by trying to help him like he runs right. from um, right it's kind of fascinating and um, I loved the American I loved you know he didn't like the American he went when he went and got the gas and mm-hmm. I loved how the American knew that he wouldn't take any payment for help or any tip and so what he what the American did there I thought was really really cool. And I thought it was good for, for David to have that experience too. Yeah. And the woman, um, whose table he's at, how he Mm -hmm. connects with her so much because she just lets him be who he is. And she sort of understands him better than anybody else. Yeah. And there was almost an ethnic thing there because Mm -hmm. she was Danish and, and he's still trying to figure out who he is, but he's got to get to Denmark. And he felt sort of a sense of homecoming when he met her without knowing why. And I thought that was really kind of beautiful, too. Friends, there is a dog in this book. If you are concerned, because, you know, very often in children's books, dogs die. So if you're concerned about the dog, uh, you need to go read our review and scroll to the bottom. You can find out the fate of the dog there. So, Diane, what did you read for us this month so we don't have to read it? (laughs) Well, oh, well, I guess this kind of is. <laughs> I was just teasing. <laughs> she was getting ready to say I don't have anything. And, like, well. and then it was like, well, actually, I do. <laughs> because it isn't terrible stuff. But I had talked um, maybe a couple of times about switchboard soldiers. Yeah. The women in World War One who were the switchboard operators and actually went to the front. And I thought that sounded like such an interesting story. And then it ended up... Um, the writer of that one made it sound it was like a novel, mm-hmm. but it felt more like a research dump. Right. Yes. Yeah. So I found another one called The Hello Girls, America's First Women Soldiers. And this is not a novel. It's mm-hmm. just factual. And I thought, well, this will probably be what I really wanted to know. 
she starts out the book talking about the state of women's liberation in the United States before that, you know, <sighs> the um, trying to get the vote, mm -hmm. which, okay, that was important, but that's not what I'm after either. I want to know about these women. Right. What were they doing? You know, tell me something about these women. So there's a couple of chapters about the, all of the um, suffragettes and the attitudes of women about women in the United States at the time and what Woodrow Wilson felt about women getting the vote and okay. And then she starts talking about the women who actually went over there and, the, and then it gets really technical, like into the, the battles and things. So what's happening in the war is important to the story, but that seems to take precedence too over what who these women were and what they were doing oh <laughs> so what a bummer. i'm not quite done with that one i know and so i'm thinking somebody needs to put these two things together yeah and make a really good story out of it so there were a couple of women who two of them kept diaries even though that was strictly forbidden and so that's where they get a lot of the information is from those women hmm. and they weren't supposed to be keeping diaries because if that fell into the hands of the enemy there would be a lot of details in there right yeah and then mm -hmm. you know people have collected a lot of letters and things like that because after the war um the women were badly treated as far as um throughout the whole thing they never quite understood what footing they were on yeah. they took the oath that soldiers take and assumed that they were in the military a lot of the attitudes were, no, you're not really military. You're just civilians that are happened to be, well, hmm, in uniform. <laughs> oh, wow. Um, so afterward, you know, they had gotten paid and everything, but they were not allowed to have the kind of insurance that soldiers would if they died. They were not given any in pensions afterwards and that kind of thing. So one of the women actually spent until... I think she was in her 90s when she died, and it took that long for them to finally get recognized for what they had done and be properly acknowledged wow. and, and for all, all the different things. And I don't think they probably ever paid them back or anything, but I think she was the last one alive. Mm. But then, so I got the book, the picture book, and I don't love the illustration. They, It's a little bit too cartoony and modern for me. Mm -hmm. But she does a better job with the story mm -hmm. than both of those. Mm. Interesting. <laughs> picture books for the win. Picture book biographies. I know. <laughs> I know. So that's kind of what tell I you what you want to know. Yeah, because mm -hmm. she uses a, a lot of the same quotes. Mm. Because there are only so many resources. Right. Anybody who wants mm -hmm. to write about this has to use those. But she uses them just as effectively, and I just thought it was more effective also because she. Take, it's called Grace Banker and her Hello Girls yeah. because she was the main one. So it's a little more concentrated on one person. And so you kind of get to know this person and what she was like rather than this scattering of there was this one and there was this one and there was this one. Or we're not really talking about the women. We're talking about politics. Um, anyway, that's why I brought that up really. Is if anybody's interested in the subject, I would start there. Yeah, cool. Start cool. the picture book. Grace Banker and her hello. Answer the call. We just think that's probably a good piece of advice yeah, all the way good around. Rule of thumb. Start with picture book biographies. Want to know yeah. something? Just start yep. there. <laughs> Use that as your invitation to learn more. <laughs> right. Well, I read the first one before I knew there was a picture book right, biography. Right. So I could have saved right. myself some trouble. I'm not sorry I read them. Mm -hmm. I'm just discontent. Yeah. 
Okay, mm-hmm. now, somebody, come along and do this the way I want it done. <laughs> or you could do it. <laughs> I don't know if I want to that badly. <laughs> Although I would love to read some of the diaries and the letters. Mm. I would love for you to I read those fascinated and, it. and then write something yeah. that I would like to read. <laughs> the time period is so interesting. And, and to think about these few hundred women who actually went over there when there were not American soldiers. Right. There were British ones, but not at the front. Mm. And there were a lot of women in the YWCA helping over there as volunteers right. who were close. Diane and I are working on some big projects for 2024. And we keep saying, that's another World War II book. Every time we come up with a book, we're like, that's another World War II book. And Diane keeps saying, do you think that people might think that the only thing we read is World War II books? (laughs) It sure seems that way from our reading diet right now. But there is something utterly fascinating and gripping about World War II we are far enough removed from it for it to really feel like history, but it's still so incredibly relevant and I think, you know, has the capacity to be repeated in a way. And so the stories that have come out of that time period, they deserve, I think, the place that they have in our reading diet right now. I think there's a lot of really, really important things for us to love and learn from all these wonderful books that are set in that period. And I would say World War I as well. There's just not as many books of that period. Right. And that's too bad because I, the reason it, it interests me so much is because it was such a transformative time. Absolutely. There was the way it had always been, and then all of a sudden, it's not anymore. And it, it there and would have so been more. so much changed. There would have been more stories, but it got eclipsed by World War II. Right. So, well, what else are you reading, Diane? Well, again, this is sort of a back to last time, too. Um, I was talking about Mary Roberts Reinhardt mm-hmm. and her. The butler did it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and just her, she wrote a lot of mystery books and she wrote, wrote a lot of different kinds of things. But the reason I'm bringing it back up again is because of what I thought was a really interesting connection. A few years ago, I had written, I had read a biography called Had She But Known Mm -hmm. by Charlotte Mm McLeod. And that was interesting, but I don't remember hearing anything about this other aspect. I found another one called Improbable Fiction by Jan Kahn. And it was written in 1980, so it was written first. Wow. And I think it's one of those things where there's not a lot of information about it. And then like you go online to do some research and certain things haven't come up yet. And so last time I looked, maybe that one wasn't available or something like that. I did know that there was a point in her life where she became fascinated with the West Mm -hmm. and that she had gone out to, um, she went on a pack trip through Glacier National Park at one point in the 1915. So, you know, on horses and stuff. She was a war correspondent for World War One before America was in it. Oh. So she went over in 1915 and then wrote stories for a newspaper or a magazine. And I guess when she came back, she was kind of exhausted. Yeah. And she met a man named Howard Eaton, who had a ranch in North Dakota, who had, and his family had started it in 1879. And I kind of went, oh, oh, Eaton, I've heard that name before. Well, in 1904, they moved their ranch, their their dude ranch, to Wolf, Wyoming, 
which is a half an hour east of oh. here. And I'm going, oh, oh, Eaton's Ranch. Yeah. yeah. Everybody knows Eaton's Ranch. Oh. Because it's been around since 1904, mm-hmm. and it's really close to here. And um, he had he invited her, Mary Roberts Reinhardt, to go on this pack trip because he wanted her to chronicle it. Mm. It was still a really hard thing to do in 1915, and not very many people had seen the area. And then after that, she went back several times, and she also came out to the west and went to different ranches. But um, I haven't finished this book, but just glancing, looking at the index, she was she went to that one several times. And I thought, oh, I wonder if anybody there even knows about her, you know, if there's any connection. Because there's a dude ranch up on the mountains that Ken and I worked in when we were first married called Spiro Wigwam. And one of the cabins there is named the Hemingway oh. because Ernest Hemingway came up and like spent a summer <laughs> writing there. So it's very cool that Hemingway came there. And there's a polo field here that's famous. And, and Queen Elizabeth came to see polo one year. Wow. In, I think in 1980. Yeah. Before I was here and knew anything about you it. You guys but. play polo in Wyoming? Yeah. Wow. It's huge. I did not know that. Well, you have the horses. Right. That's that's fascinating. Well, one of the things about Eaton's Ranch that's fun is I've never been out there. I, it's not the kind of thing I do. But every spring, they drive the horses from their winter range mm-hmm. through the middle of town. It feels like Ralph Moody. <laughs> yeah. So they have a couple hundred horses. They... I guess they take them about a hundred miles in a three day trip, but one part of the trip is driving them through Sheridan. And so people just turn out and line the roads to watch these horses go by. And I never have done it. I've just never been in the right place at the right time. But anyway, that would be that something, just fun. And that would be something to see. That really would be. Yeah. Yeah. I was watching a little video about it and some of the people were saying, Oh yeah, it's so cool because some guy from Ohio, we were like five feet from this horse. <laughs> Ooh, five feet from a horse. <laughs> That's pretty amazing. Got to come to Wyoming for that. <laughs> Friends, Diane's husband owns horses. <laughs> well, he did. did. He did. They did. Yes. But horses have been a big part of your life. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> you get close enough to get smelly. <laughs> That was just a fun connection, and I thought it was weird that the other book that I read um, hadn't said anything about that. Yeah, very interesting. So what are you reading on your Kindle? Well, it's a Mary Roberts Reinhardt called The uh, the Amazing Adventures of Letitia Carberry. <laughs> and she's they call her Tish, but she's a... I don't, it's just, it's really kind of a silly one. It's a murder mystery and there, you know, there's actual death and everything, <laughs> but it's also kind of funny. Mm. And she wrote several books, I guess, guess with Tish in them. Oh. So this one's told by her friend is telling about what Tish does from her point of view. So you're being, you're finding out the story from almost like the third third person or something sure. <laughs> <laughs> but i think one of the interesting things is that she wrote this one in 1911 mm-hmm. and so there's no world war one yet it's just i mean life in the yeah. early 1900s yeah and it's in a hospital so tish 
hurt her knee or something. So she's in the hospital just taking a rest. <laughs> so it's almost like she's staying in a hotel that just happens to have nurses in that it. That is the way hospitals used to be, yeah. Right. So mm-hmm. she's in a, they're in a hospital, but it's sort of, it's very loosely done, mm-hmm. you know, compared to the way we think about mm-hmm. it. All these nurses are running around and they have their wards that they're supposed to attend to and certain things they have to do. But, oh gosh, could you sit by this guy while he dies? Because it's time for me to go to dinner, <laughs> you know, um, just, and, and Tish is wandering all over the hospital and people chew her out for being on her legs because her, her knees hurt. She really should get back to bed, but she's just pretty much going to do whatever she wants. And... <laughs> I was just thinking about this afternoon, like, wow, that's, it's just something that we can't even feature. If you've ever been in a hospital, that doesn't make any None. sense. Where are they really? Right. <laughs> so is this a hospital or is it a hotel? Right. A rest well, home or something. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so who is Tish in the stories though? Like she solves the crimes or she's, she's just like. Yeah, she's going to solve the crime, but her friend is talking about how she's doing it. How are these amazing adventures if she's just wandering around a hospital? <laughs> she's going to figure out who did the murder, oh, I guess. Okay. Does the murder happen in the hospital? Yes. Oh. <laughs> so the whole book takes place in the hospital? Yes. Basic. Wow. <laughs> that does sound kind of fun, actually. <laughs> maybe this was a and, forerunner well, for Cherry Ames. <laughs> Is it a hospital oh. for rich people, though? <laughs> no. No, no. Mm-hmm. most of the people are not rich. I, I, that's what's kind of what, what's funny about it is, is trying to figure out what exactly is going on here. <laughs> yeah, whatever you want, I guess. <laughs> wow. Because I think in 1911, it's almost like what a hospital would have been like 50 or 100 years before that as well. Mm-hmm. They're not that far advanced yet. No, exactly. Because World War One also had a lot to do with the advancement of medicine. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. I mean, I guess there wasn't much else to do in hospitals. You pretty much just were cared for until you died. There wasn't a lot of curative action going on there. Controlling infection, maybe, but setting of bones. Maybe. Yeah, maybe. Maybe. You still hear them saying things like, um, I don't think that's going to help. <laughs> <laughs> well, she's just in there to rest. I'm, okay. I assume she's paying for it, but... <laughs> It'll probably all be free because she'll solve the murder and they'll just thank her for being their honored guest. Maybe. (laughs) Well, what else are you reading? Anything else that's exciting? Well, lots of things for our project. Um, Mm -hmm. As far as World War II goes, we have been doing a lot of that. Mm -hmm. And so I'm catching up to Resistance, which you ladies have already read. But because of a lot of the other things, I'm I'm going through that one and thinking, oh, I don't really know if I want to know. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure I want to go through this again. Mm-hmm. Do we have to do this? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> because it's the, uh, people sneaking into the ghettos and their life is constantly in danger and mm-hmm. anyone could die at any mm-hmm. minute and people are starving to death and betraying each other. And after a while, that's enough. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard to read too many stories like that. I, I Resistance is mm-hmm. the one that I would read. But it's hard to read. When you've read a lot of them, it's hard to read a lot like that, I think. Mm-hmm. Because I think I read Words on Fire and then The Winged Watchman, which is more gentle, yeah. but it's still... It's still... On the first mm-hmm. page, I think he says, I, I don't remember what it's like not to be afraid. Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I couldn't live like that. 
I think about that every time we read a World War II book. Every single time I think, if this happens to us, how am I going to live like this? How am I going to make these choices? How would I make these choices? Like, I don't even think I could survive for very long in those situations because I am just a tired old mom, you know? Like, you just, those stories, they are good for us because I think they really force us to contemplate how truly blessed we are. And I think they're good Mm -hmm. for our kids because they force our kids to realize that there is something so much greater out there. Um, And it could be that there's something worth preserving and fighting for and that it's possible to be courageous when you don't, you know, when you don't feel like being courageous. That's definitely what I got out of Resistance and Winged Watchmen. When I read those, sometimes that are that intense, I think, I'm not sure I want to live that badly. There's a, I mean, there's definitely a part of me that wonders the same thing. What do you, what are you living for? And that is the driving question of I am David. How badly mm-hmm. do I really want to live? I like these types of stories, though, too, because even if we don't find ourselves in that extreme of a circumstance, we find ourselves oftentimes in similar ones, situations mm-hmm. That are very similar, Mm -hmm. just maybe not to that level. And one of the things I've always taught my kids is that we have to make our decisions in advance. Mm -hmm. If you, and then if you decided to yourself, like maybe you thought to yourself, I don't want to do that. Well, A, you have to make the decision not to, but B, you also have to know what will I do? And that decision has to be pre-made. What will I do is I will do this in the Mm -hmm. moment. So that when, because otherwise you do what's instinctive, right? And I think in World War II, a lot of people were doing what was instinctive. Mm -hmm. Because they hadn't decided who they were. They hadn't decided maybe that that they were going to connect to God and that God had called them to do something higher, right? So I sometimes think that's what I want to get from it myself. That's what I hope my children get from it is that they can look at these books and think, well, what would I do in a similar situation? What would I do in a similar situation that's maybe something that might actually happen in my everyday life? I completely agree with that. But I think there's another complexity and I think resistance I also just read The Silver Sword and watching the German people not be able to believe the evil that was really happening next to them and how it just came in waves. But if I just acquiesce on this, will that be enough? Well, if I just do that, will that be enough? And you just see one thing after another that it was being eroded away. Their, their sensibility was being eroded away. What I'm trying to say is their disbelief in the human condition and in the capacity for evil was, it took them by surprise. They did not believe that this kind of evil could really exist. And I think these books are so important and, and resistance is so important because one of the things we see in resistance is how the people are actually living in the ghetto. Like literally they had, so many of them had no options at all. And it's important for us to remember if it has happened once and any of us who study history know that this has happened many times, you know, Nero did burn Christians alive as torches in the streets. This kind of evil is not new, but we need to be reminded of it with every generation or we're going to lose it. We're going to lose the truth of it and we're not going to then see it coming when it happens to us. So I think these books are really good for keeping kindled in our fam, in our memory, in our um, hearts, that real evil is unfathomably evil. And 
you can't appease evil. So you have to make, like you're saying, Tanya, you have to know now what your principles are and what you're willing to sacrifice to guard those principles, because that is the only weapon you have against evil other than, of course, grace. But you have to be willing to ask for grace, too. And that is why I sometimes think we need to have other types of books that are good versus evil that are not just historical yes. fiction. That's why we need fantasy. Mm-hmm. We need to fight <laughs> right, those so dragons still... too. <laughs> right. We need to know that there is evil. We need to know that good always is in the end. We need story, the ring to be good, destroyed conquers, all evil. the time, right? Yes. <laughs> but sometimes it's nice to have mm-hmm. it be like a separation. Like this isn't another World War II story, right? It can be something else that we can rally around without it being so heavy yes. on our hearts because like Diane said you can only so go many of them so heavy so long before it just weighs your heart down even when you see the good and the beauty coming through thank heavens for things like the lord of the rings <laughs> yeah like the lord of the rings right. or um that lloyd alexander yes. book we recently read yeah, the iron right, ring yeah. right books like that that just show you that same struggle and yet the heroism and the good choices just ring true and shine forth. Well, I'm not going to stop Diane from talking, but I think this is a cool thing. So, Diane, you're reading, you know, this this World War II book, which is re- relatively gutting, and it does have a very sad ending. It has a hopeful but yet very sad ending. Come, the, that hope comes at a great price. But I read what you told me to read, which is Snow Treasure, which is just so fun. It's so Mm -hmm. fun and so happy. And also, I mean, it was just, it was such a wonderful, wonderful story to be able to read about World War II and Norwegian occupation and to see just this brilliant success story that doesn't come at any kind of brutal cost. It was a nice, refreshing way into World War II. And I had... Um, I was mentioning it at one of my book clubs, and one of my young people said that he has read this book 11 times. He loves it so much. <laughs> like This is not a kid who's prone to rereading. Um, but it, every little boy I know who has read Snow Treasure has cited it as being one of their absolute favorite books. They just, there's something so exciting about kids smuggling gold out of Norway on their sleds. <laughs> <laughs> But it, their decisions are just as weighty. Oh, for sure. They could all have been shot. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And there is a little danger, right, at the end. And there, I mean, there was definitely, there was a lot of risk. They were riding those sleds right past Nazi soldiers. <laughs> they, they could have been shot on the spot. So the, they were still making, like you say, very courageous decisions. But they were, the story, the tone of the story was so much more playful and fun yes diane i didn't want to cut you off i just thought while we were talking world war ii i wanted to mention snow treasure so do you have more you want to say no there were just those two that i mean because i've been reading a lot and it's almost come down to i was getting too big a pile mm-hmm. and i thought i gotta just get some of these i'm not gonna get to it i gotta thin this pile i gotta take some book back to the library i gotta reshelve some books and not be looking at them so i did that and then i went and got a whole bunch more <laughs> So I'm sort of in that mode where when I sit down in the evening to read, I go, okay, I'm going to read a chapter of this and a chapter of this and a chapter of this and hope I stay awake that long. <laughs> because I don't want to not get them read, right. but I, there are other things I have to do. Right. And so that's how I take care of that. 
Well, and what our listeners don't know is that you and I are about to launch um, a huge project that we've been working on all fall. And it has required an extraordinary amount of reading on our part because even though it's um, we're developing book club tools for moms and librarians, and while it's just one book for part of the project and another book for another part of the project and so on. Maybe maybe we're really only working with 12 books. There's a lot of rereading that we're doing and a lot of related reading we're doing in order to try to make that project as truly helpful as possible. And so a big part of our reading diet right now has really been consumed by that work and it's not doesn't have quite the same payoff. <laughs> It's not like you're we're not getting through our stacks, but we're going deep into them. <laughs> right. That's I was going to use the word deep. It's it's deeper reading than just let's get through this book and say whether we liked it or not. Right. Exactly. Well, like you, Diane, I have been reading a whole heck of a lot for our book club kits that we're getting ready to launch. And there are, you know, we're doing a lot of those books and we'll be talking about that more in January. But it requires multiple readings and lots of work. And so I also have not been reading at my normal rate. But I have needed sort of some interesting things to just sort of uh, entertain my brain or tickle my brain. And I've been wanting to and enjoying the opportunity to get caught up on things that Tanya has been recommending or um, (laughs) that Diane that you've recommended. Sarah, I'm not reading books you're recommending because I'm reading the same books that you are when you're reading them. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and you're never going to get caught up on no. the ones Tanya recommends. <laughs> no, that will never happen. <laughs> Tanya's like, just wait. I've only started to share a little bit of the list with you. <laughs> uh, see, well, job security. <laughs> <laughs> totally. But I went to uh, Living Book Press's website the other day for something. Uh, actually, I went to, to, I really love his cover of the Microbes book. Both he and Purple House Press have printed this book. And it's, I really, I have Purple House Press's version. I don't have Living Books version, but I love his cover so much. So I thought, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to order that book because Michael loves the book. And so having two copies in the library actually isn't a bad thing because we're going to be using it for our school and our patrons. And then I got distracted by his new books. And then I ended up checking out and I didn't even check out with microbes because I was like, ah, I'm out of budget. (laughs) So I didn't get the book I wanted to get, but I got books I'm really excited about. And so I found among his new books and I love Anthony's new cover game. His books are so pretty now. I have a group of like eight to 12 year old boys who love childhood of famous American type books. And I only have so many of those. And they want more of that kind of thing. They don't really care if it's historical fiction as long as it's about real people doing real things. And I've got, you know, they've read through all of my Rush Revere books and they've read through my We Were There books and things like that. And they wanted something more. And so when I discovered that Anthony has this, a series of books that he is calling the America's Children series, they're on BiblioGuides. And Tanya and Sarah, you guys have them named based upon the way you saw it in the back of one of the books, right? That it's... So we called it James Otis's Colonial and Pioneer Children of America. These are on Internet Archive. And if you go to the back of the books, there is usually a series listing and it talks about other books, plus other books that the publisher was doing. It's kind of many of those old books had um, marketing in the back. Absolutely. And I think they might have even kind of sometimes called them two separate Mm. series. Like 
the pioneer children of America, the colonial children of America. We just kind of combine that and put it all awesome. together. But but they were definitely identified as two two streams in one idea. Two streams in yeah, one series. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. Well, I ended up buying all of his pioneer ones. I'm not as excited about his colonial ones right now. That's just preference. <laughs> Has nothing to do with the quality of the book. It's just preference. And so I decide so the beautiful thing about Anthony is that this is not the case for all of his books, but for many of his books, when you buy the print book, he immediately emails you a download for a free PDF version. So I bought all these books. They're going to come to me whenever they come to me. But in the meantime, I put all of them on my Kindle. And so I have been loving and enjoying Hannah of Kentucky. I have just, I just read this fall, the Daniel Boone landmark book, and it was so good. I couldn't believe how good it was. I enjoyed it so much that when I saw that Hannah of Kentucky is a little, is a 14 year old girl living in Boonesboro with Daniel Boone, I thought, I'm going to like this one. And I do. I love the the language. The writing of the book is actually very interesting. It's a it's a very living voice in this series. Um, I love how practical the story is. And also, it's just really, it's, it's like a We Were There book. You're being, you're entering into true events and you're watching them through the eyes of this particular child character. So, I bought all of his pioneer books. Can't wait to read all of them. But right now, the thing I'm loving is Hannah of Kentucky. So, and Tanya and Sarah, you guys have never read that one, that series, right? Mm -mm. Interesting. No. I will report back. Mm -hmm. One of the things I um, do really love, and I think Sarah, you and I talked about this, is that when you're on Living Book Press's website, you can get a preview of the story mm -hmm. too. So if you're on the page, you go to preview book and you can see quite a few pages, um, quite a few pages to kind of give you a feel if this is going to yeah. be a, a good pick. And he does have a publisher's note at the beginning that talks about, it's a note to the reader. Um, yeah. About what is in this book. And the datedness of how things are expressed. And so is that what you were getting at, mm -hmm. Tanya? That the Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think what he wrote is actually very well yeah, said. Yeah, beautiful. I, I, this is just such a good question that people seem to be divided about. Do we read old books that have language in it and offensive, mm -hmm, you mm -hmm. know, ideas that would make us really uncomfortable and that wouldn't be appropriate today? Or do we just not read them? Do we update them? Like, like there's just so many things. And it's easy to even vacillate between the two ideas. Yeah. Sometimes, sometimes I'm thinking and of it one way and sometimes another. I can see it both ways. Mm-hmm. I've listened to it all and I've just pondered it a lot, but I really love his note. Can I, I'm going to just read his note. I was yeah. hoping you would. Because yes. I, I really appreciate it. Sometimes you see these notes in front of books, but this one I think, like you're saying, is particularly well done. So he says, a note mm -hmm. to the reader. This book was written in the early 20th century, a time when societal attitudes and language were significantly different from what we recognize today. As you delve into its pages, you might come across terms and descriptions that our modern sensibilities find offensive or inappropriate. These echo the beliefs and biases of that era, some of which were fueled by ignorance, fear, and misunderstanding. We've chosen to preserve the original text, providing an unvarnished window into the past. It's essential to approach this reading with an open heart and mind, recognizing the historical context that shaped these terms and views. While we've made progress as a society, the shadows of these old attitudes sometimes persist. 
By recognizing and reflecting on the profound impact such perspectives have left on our culture, we can deepen our own understanding of history and chart a course towards a more inclusive and compassionate future. I love it. So well written. He's Mm -hmm. owning. This is what it was. This is why they felt this way. Some of this still hangs on today. We have the opportunity to recognize Mm -hmm. that that's what it was. It's history. And we can recognize that it's not right. And we can deal with it and make it better. And recognize what persists. I love that idea. Yeah. Yes. I thought that was good. Didn't you? Just like, oh, that's beautiful. It's very well put. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It is. And you can just chew on it Mm -hmm. a little bit, especially as you're vacillating between (laughs) these different ideas. I just thought, well, that's a good... Yes, Anthony. Well done. done. Bravo. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, so I really have appreciated Anthony's new releases. He's been releasing tons of books this fall, and I love how much science we've been getting from him. And I love all this historical fiction. I used to take an audiobook to bed with me, but I love Diane. You always talk about taking your Kindle to bed, and that's really helped me reorder some of my habits. So now I'm taking a Kindle to bed with me and I'm reading a different kind of book at night, but a book that I can really enjoy. So I really, uh, I appreciate how you've rubbed off on me in that way. (laughs) (laughs) So next month, friends, we are going to have our normal, our reading life, but we're also going to have Tanya on here to revisit her role from last year. Last year we did a state of the podcast uh, episode and Mm. she's going to come back and we're going to do the 2024 state of the podcast. And we're going to tell you about a number of very exciting projects that we are working on, many of which we are working on with BiblioGuides. So so stay tuned for that. (laughs) Tanya and Sarah, of course, it's been fun. (laughs) And I appreciate you spending your afternoon with us. And I hope you have a very Merry Christmas. Yes. Thank you. And likewise. Thank you. So ladies, thank you so much for all the encouragement to read our books, read our stacks. Uh, I love all the recommendations we get from each other. And I will tell you that every time one of these podcasts airs, a couple of my patrons immediately put everything on hold. (laughs) So I love that. Um, Thanks so much for joining us. And friends, thanks for listening in. It's been a delight to spend 2023 with you in this way. This is our last podcast of this calendar year. And um, it's a beautiful way. We, we opened the podcast last year with Tanya interviewing us for the state of the podcast. And we're going to close our podcast for the year with this on. So thank you, Tanya and Sarah from BiblioGuides for being kind of the, the bookends to our year. Friends, we would love to connect with you and we would love for you to be able to stay in touch with us. There are a couple of ways you can do that. You always hear us say that you can connect with us on social media. You can definitely find us in the BiblioGuides online community, which is a mighty network and it's totally free. You can also find us on our website, but we also wanted to make sure that you know that every month we do have a newsletter that the card catalog which is a shared endeavor between BiblioGuides and the librarians and us that Sherry puts together every month. And we all contribute to that. And we would love for you to subscribe to that. So you can find the link to subscribe to Shelf Notes, which is the card catalog monthly newsletter. You can find the link for that in the show notes. So friends, thank you so very much for being here. A very Merry Christmas to you and Happy New Year. 